Hi, everyone. Paul from the Data Storytellers here. Today, I'm with Francisco Ruiz, who's the head of data science over at Minecraft, which is a Microsoft company. Great to have you with us, Francisco. Hey, thank you for having me. Super excited to be here. So you're, you're pretty active on, on the, uh, you know, in the, the, the data science space. But for those who haven't heard of you, just tell us a, a little bit about yourself to start with. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my name is Francisco. I am the head of data science and data engineering for Minecraft, as Paul mentioned. I uh, work at Mojang Studios. Mojang Studios is a limited integrated studio that is owned by Microsoft. We're part of Microsoft Games. Uh, in case you have been living under a rock for the past 13 or 15 years, Minecraft is one of the best-selling games of all time. We see about 130 million monthly active users. So that means that we produce a ton of data. Uh, my team is responsible for analyzing all of that data, understanding and creating insights for game developers to make fun games and fun experiences. And we manage the entire data infrastructure uh, for, for the studio. Before I was at Microsoft, I worked at Electronic Arts as a director of analytics. I managed the analytics efforts for FIFA, NHL, and UFC, which are sports titles. I've been in general uh, about, about 15 years in the, in the data science and data analytics space, so have quite a bit of experience. I started out for from the boots on the ground level as, a, as an analyst, uh, grow, grew into management, and now uh, managing the entire effort for, for a large studio. Awesome, and I'd love to take a deep dive, and I think we'll get more into this, but uh, you've been working video game analytics for, for, for a big part of your career, at least for the last 10 years or so. How have you seen that grow and evolve and, and change over that time, just in, from, a, from a data science analytics perspective? It's been a super interesting journey. The, uh, the, the, it's interesting to, to see, think of the video game industry originally as a packaged goods type of company. It was um, basically games would get developed, packaged in discs or CD-ROMs and be shipped out to stores. And then that was it. There was a little bit of consumer research happening after the release cycle. And then the game would be made a little better and tweaked um, and, and basically be on a, on a development cycle for, for a few years. And data analytics and insights started to grow with the... As, as internet penetration started to, to grow and also mobile gaming uh, started to become um, bigger over the past number of years. So um, if you think back to around uh, 2010, 2011, this is when Minecraft started to grow, for example, but also all other games started to see in-game monetization, for example, and, and online experiences. There have been a ton of experiences in the past that were fully online, but for the most part, um, we hit MMO levels, uh, massive uh, multiplayer engagement uh, peaks around uh, 2010 or so. And that's really when, when the need for big data skill sets uh, started to grow in video games. I think back at my time at Electronic Arts, I was their first senior analyst focused on the digital monetization side of sports titles. Uh, for those of you who aren't super familiar with the sports titles uh, space in video games, there's a video game mode um, in FIFA, NHL, UFC, and others called Ultimate Team. And that became a massive uh, cultural phenomenon uh, in the, in, in around that time, 2010 to tw uh, 2015. And this is because consoles became connected, uh, friends started playing and engaging with each other, uh, but also you could build your own teams. Uh, and that required quite a bit of, of, of data power behind it for in multiple areas. First, understanding what players in, like to do in video games so that we could optimize the experience. Uh, second, we didn't know how big this thing was going to become as, as more players started to go online and play video games online. You would see all sorts of metrics from engagement, from monetization, acquisition, ramp up uh, exponentially. And we needed statisticians to try to tell us, hey, how, how big can this be, right? Because companies all of a sudden needed to adjust to this new, new wave of online engagement. Um, you can see it very pragmatically if you go to, uh, to uh, Google Invest or Mark, uh, uh, Market Watch or Bloomberg or something along those lines, you can see the rise in stock prices for some of the companies, the video game companies around that time, I think about 10, 2011, 2012. 
Activision, Electronic Arts, and others. And this is exactly when uh, the digital engagement on video games started to, to really ramp up, to really become a thing. As I mentioned, this had been happening in PC gaming, so on and so forth, uh, in other areas in the past, but this is where things caught fire. Um, I've seen analytics and data science really evolve in this space. The uh, teams have grown, um, big focus on online engagement, but also there's a big need to uh, keep players safe in an ecosystem. The video game industry um, has a, had a tendency in the past to be somewhat, the communities ha have had a tendency to, to become toxic over time. Uh, so there's a big application on, on online safety. Uh, on really understanding the content on online conversations when they are happening, for example. Um, so the sophistication of skill sets uh, has grown over time, uh, and we see that happen over a number of years. And I would say um, another big change, which is very meaningful, is this intersection between art and science. I think video games is one area where it's a very creative uh, industry where uh, video game developers don't necessarily want to be told what to do you, uh, based on, on data insights all of the time, right? So they don't want to be chasing a KPI. And, um, and, and striking that balance has been super interesting to really understand over the past number of years. There's, um, there's this, this concept in politics, right? The, the technocrats uh, that are politicians, for example, that drive policy based on numbers, on, on, on hard targets. And, and, and if you approach a creative industry with, the, with that frame of mind, where all you're trying to do is optimize a KPI, name it being revenue or acquisition or something along those lines, then it's gonna be very, it's gonna be very difficult to get your message across uh, in, the, in the creative world. So this is where skill sets uh, that are more uh, relevant around um, quote-unquote soft skills, communication, um, partnership, uh, stakeholder relationships became mm. super important uh, in the video game industry. And I would say probably even more important than other industries because of this fact, the fact that we are optimizing sometimes creative decisions. Yeah. And it is interesting as well, if you compare it to some of the more traditional companies that have been around for, for decades. I remember uh, you know, growing up, uh, we had the Panini sticker book. That was like our ultimate team. It was very, you know, you had to go to the shop, get the stickers. And then when Ultimate Team came out with FIFA, for example, I'm British, so football is kind of ingrained in me and all my friends are really into it. I, I just remember thinking how crazy it was. You, you, could, you the capability, and that's just from a from a consumer perspective, right? Actually, on the flip side, I imagine that that, that exponential growth uh, was probably even harder for like, like as you say, you were the first senior analyst there. So actually, to be able to to, to leverage the that the power of that, it was probably more than than you can handle. I'd imagine. And you've brought up a, a ton of great stuff, which I'm sure we'll touch on. Uh, I really like what you said about the the art versus the science because this is kind of. Uh, what we talk about here at the data storytellers again we'll really get into it okay so when we talk about data it is a very technocratic word in a way when you take it at face value it's okay how much data do i have how how much can i get out of the data and it's very uh you know fiscally and and, and numbers based but actually when you work for a big organization and you're trying to implement real change that's when as you said the soft skills really have more importance from that regard uh, so just on that note, before we, we go ahead, can you just tell us a few words about what you're focusing on in your current role? Because you've been there for, for almost three years now. So uh, I just kind of want to kind of give the audience a bit of context there. Yeah, so my team is an end-to-end -end shop. We manage everything from the capture of data. We have a data engineering team that builds the pipelines and all of the technology to manage data at scale. Uh, as I mentioned, we're talking about 130 million players producing data points and we, we capture a lot of data, anything from behavioral data on the game side to social data, what are players saying on, on the social ecosystem, to player support data, player safety, you name it. Um, we also have an analytics environment team. Uh, this analytics environment team translates some of the raw data sources into data structures that are easier, easier to access uh, for the data science and data analytics team. Um, so it's an end-to-end -end shop. Uh, we manage uh, everything from product analytics, so looking at what players are doing inside a game to make the experience a little bit better. This is one of the things where I, I contrast against the music industry or the movie industry, for example, where uh, we're a form of digital entertainment that is living and breathing. 
you can change the ending of a video game almost in near real time, right? So if we see that players are getting stuck at a level or uh, players are really not enjoying the ending of a video game, you could you could technically just patch it and and ship the game out and and and, uh, and that's it, right? And you cannot do that on mus in music or movies, right? So digital entertainment has historically been fairly linear. In video games, you have a little bit of a back and forth. So our data scientists and analysts are very active at understanding product behaviors uh, to make experiences better. We also have business analytics, so everything for uh, engagement, monetization. This is a little bit more KPI driven. Um, and then we also have uh, other functions around personalization, data science, machine learning. Um, and this is where we take best practices from other industries around um, uh, using machine learning to uh, personalize player experiences and other things. Uh, and last but not least, we also have a quality function that uh, tells us how the game is doing from a quality standpoint and where players are hitting any technical roadblocks. Yeah. Uh, and as you said, Minecraft is the biggest selling game of all time, right? And and as your, as your role in, as the head of data science and data engineering, that's the, the job title, right? But what do you view the role as yourself? Are you like a, a, a data evangelist? Are you a, a data champion? Are you all of these things and more? Yeah, that, that's a, a that's an excellent question. My my I see my role as driving insights uh, that are derived from data and that are injecting an air of objectivity in a very subjective world. Um, and what I mean by that is we're really trying to make the best decisions at the time um, based on the information that we have. And we want that information to be as subjective uh, as, as possible. It's very difficult in a, in a creative environment to really be completely unbiased. And, and because we're all gamers and we're all passionate and uh, a lot of our developers are part of the social media communities that make Minecraft a living, breathing and thriving community. Um, so sometimes we have very heated debates around small things or what would appear to be small things, whether it's the component of a gameplay update, a mob, uh, you know, the color of, of a tree, um, and you name it. Um, and I see my role as driving uh, data insights that can hopefully give us a little bit of an objective view, um, allow us to take a step back and look at the forest through the trees and make the best decisions that we can at any given point in time. So it's a very broad role. Um, I don't see it just as delivering, as creating data structures or building data infra. Really the end goal is uh, to enable decision-making. I see a future in which data scientists and uh, decision makers are seeing eye to eye, they have the exact same context. And I do see also a future where data scientists are actually going to be decision makers. If you think about it, uh, in some ways, algorithms are already making decisions uh, at a day-to-day at a, a -day level around what players are encountering in video games, what recommendations they're getting for new experiences, for example. Um, and that's just gonna continue to grow over time. Uh, and my hope is that as we build subject matter expertise, we also have data scientists or people with data science skills that's making decisions on different strategies. I, I love all these, these phrases you're throwing out. The one I latched onto there heavily was, I, I bring objectivity in a subjective world. So bringing like an, an objective mind to, to a business that is based on KPIs, like any, any good business, right? Uh, how would you, what do you think is data-drivenness and how would you define that in, in this context of the being the, the objective in a subjective world? Yeah, it, 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 Mojang thinks very deeply about these topics and, and part of me is to, to also be in between and trying to, to, uh, to balance out the wants and needs from different stakeholder groups. Uh, you mentioned the phrase uh, data-driven and I think it is true that a lot of video games feel a little data-driven, especially on the mobile side when uh, there's a ton of optimization to, to hap that, that happens um, to, to hit specific engagement targets and monetization targets. And that's not a secret. Uh, the, a lot of the video game folks that are part of data science fields are, are, um, have exposed a lot of that in conferences and, and we capture a lot of best practices from the video game industry at large. But, um, but we push very hard to not just be data-driven, we, we try to be data-informed 
Um, and, and what we mean by that is that we don't always need to see KPIs in, in, in binary ways. And, and, and I think that sounds interesting coming from a, from a data scientist, but um, I, I'll try to explain here. If you think about um, the trying to understand conversations on social media using algorithms, for example, um, one word can mean uh, multiple things, right? We, we actually have run into scenarios recently where the word help can be classified as positive or negative by an algorithm. Um, so if I'm a, a technocrat, quote unquote, and uh, I try to tell you how many people are asking for help on social media, uh, and I just count the number of showings that that word will have, then you, you will be scared. Um, and what's really interesting here is that when you actually start dissecting that number, when you start drilling a little bit deeper, then it can mean a couple of different things and the context becomes really important. Uh, which this is why we try to not necessarily just uh, look at KPIs in isolation, but also the context around them uh, to try to, to, to inform our teams and make sure that we're making the right decisions. Mm. And, and again, just, just tying on the back of that, how do you, how do you bring that, that, that personality, that those interpersonal skills into a role that is so KPI driven? Yeah, that's a great, great question. So one of the things that we, we have tried to do, and, and this is recent, maybe in the past couple of years, um, we put a, a huge emphasis in trying to intersect people's passions and their work the day to day. This is really important because if you find that intersection where somebody is super passionate about a game, um, and if you think even farther than that, um, or more ambitiously, you can find somebody that's very uh, passionate about a game topic, uh, and intersect that with their data science profession, then all of a sudden their job becomes their hobby. And, and that's really what we're, we're chasing. Um, in the past, and you mentioned FIFA, for example, uh, when I worked at Electronic Arts, I remember going to the Electronic Arts studio and uh, people would take uh, lunch breaks and play football. Uh, and, and that's really what we're, what we're chasing. Can we find people that are passionate about video games? Can we find folks in the community, in the Minecraft community that are very passionate about specific Minecraft topics? And can we uh, create roles around them that, uh, that, will, that will also be, bring a, a, a ton of uh, meaning to, to the information and the data that we're, that we're capturing. So we've been doing that quite a bit over the past number of years, hiring uh, people that are passionate about the intersection of data and video games on the product side, on the business side, even on the quality and security and safety side. And we, we see that um, shine through naturally in the interpersonal relationships. It's funny when you interact with creative folks, uh, they, there's, there's a, a little bit of, uh, of authority for coming from a video game developer or somebody that has been around for a number of years. Uh, and they really respect folks that understand their product and they have played their product and can, can also talk to them as a video game player or somebody who really understands the player experience, not just the person that is bringing in the spreadsheets and the dashboards and the KPIs. And that makes perfect sense as well. If you, if you, talent is a really hard thing to find. If you have the pull of someone who's already engaged with the, with the brand or the company, then, then that's, you're already a huge step ahead of the competition. It's not just in video games, right? If you, you know, drink, for example, I'm drinking Montelier now, which is a Pepsi product. So I'm already, I already have that extra level of engagement with the product because I love it. It's, it's spring mineral sparkling water, right? And it's, it's my, it's my favorite thing to drink. I wouldn't go anywhere else. And if I were to, to you know, go down that path and, and look for that role, I already have an in and the company already knows that I'm, I'm engaged with the brand. And that's a, that's a very hard thing to find, I think, in a lot of industries. Uh, but also, I think you, you, you have that edge. Do you, you think it gives you uh, an extra advantage over the competition when it comes specifically to hiring quality data talent? I believe so, and and I think that the the risk the, the risk here is um, we also have to balance out the other side, and, and I'm going to play devil's advocates on some of my, on, on my own statements, right? Because you don't want to build echo chambers, right? And the what, one of the things that has happened in the in the gaming industry has been that because they, some some companies have hired people that only play that game, they know all of a sudden that game becomes super core. And, uh, and just representative of a small microcosm of, of, of the audience. So one of the things that, that, that I would also suggest as, uh, as a little bit of a counterbalance is uh, bringing in folks that have diverse experiences, but you can find passion, um, not just on the game itself and the industry itself, but also on representing 
players and representing uh, customers. So that becomes uh, really valuable. I do believe that hiring folks that are passionate about video games, that are passionate about digital entertainment, um, can give us a very strong edge in inside the studio because we're talking um, eye to eye on a, on a specific product. But I think there's also the opportunity for folks that might not necessarily be gamers or might not necessarily be always online um, to, to come into the industry and provide uh, uh, objective points of view as long as they can do a good job at representing the, the players at large, if that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. And and, and actually, uh, a kind of follow-up question from that. As one of the data leaders specifically for, for Mojang Studios, um, I imagine a lot of what we talk about here at the Data Storytellers are things like, okay, how do we engage with the rest of the business? So uh, what I'd really like to find out is, you know, based on the context of working at the studio and in the bigger context of working on a specific video game in the, the you know, the even bigger context of working for you know, one of the biggest companies in the world in Microsoft, how do you find that that affects the approaches you take to data transformation and and engaging the business with data in general? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, we have been very pragmatic in approaching this uh, this challenge. I think that a lot of companies face the the challenge that teams, analytics teams, and data science teams can sometimes become a little bit isolated, especially when there's a couple of layers of translation, um, and that that can be dangerous. One of the things that I see consistently happening in data science and analytics is that there are very frequent reorgs. And I think that's really as a, as a result of companies really trying to harness the power of data science and analytics. So the organizational setup, I believe, is, is very, very important. Um, one of the things that we, we have done is we've actually removed any sort of translation layer, name it uh, be uh, uh, some somebody like a, a product project manager or somebody that could potentially act as a liaison in between the data science teams and the product teams and business teams. What we have asked some of our data science uh, data scientists to do is to take on leadership roles and actually go direct to these product teams. And as I mentioned in the in in in, in a, a couple of minutes ago. Uh, really see eye to eye on the business challenge, understand the problem at hand in the same way that the stakeholder is understanding it so that we can provide our best answer and our, our, our best insight. But this organizational setup is tricky because they're in a, in a big studio like Minecraft where we're talking about hundreds of people, hundreds of stakeholders, not just a few. Um, we need different setups for different challenges. So we have a completely different setup for our business analytics versus what we have for the product analytics. The product analytics really has to be a very meaningful back and forth where, as I mentioned, there has to be space for creative opinion and for dissecting problems and looking at them in different lenses. Whereas the binary, the, the business analytics can be a little bit more binary. Did we hit our revenue target? Yes or no, right? That's, that's the technocrat space. Um, so I think you, you'll need different setups and here the key is hiring the right people. Um, if you have the right leader for product uh, data science, for business data science, so on and so forth, then your job as a leader becomes a lot easier uh, because you rely on some of the folks that are uh, representing the team with those verticals to, to, to drive the, 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 uh, the interactions and the, and the stakeholder relationships. What kind of qualities do you look for when it comes to taking data scientists and putting them in more leadership-based roles? So, uh, for example, with the business analytics piece, right? Uh, how do you take someone who has this really strong technical background and what qualities do you look for to, to bring them to that next level? Yeah, this is where, where the soft, quote-unquote soft skills become really important. And we've been talking about this um, quite a bit over, over the past number of years on our side is around how do we build a data scientist to be in leadership roles and drive meaningful action. Um, it's interesting to see data scientists, especially at the university level and sometimes entry level, uh, don't necessarily value quote unquote soft skills as much as uh, we value them in a, in a real business setting. Um, it really, this ability to uh, parse out an insight uh, and an, an analysis and actually take that to drive that to action is incredibly important. Um, one of the things that we really try to do is ask our uh, data science managers to also stay relevant on the technical side. 
so that they can talk the talk with their direct reports uh, and, and their teams. And they know what an AI and ML algorithm is doing. And sometimes they can code themselves, but they can also uh, help us dissect the problem, uh, communicate insights and drive to action on the, on the stakeholder side. So it's really, it's really a, ba a balance. Uh, staying relevant on the technical side is incredibly valuable because it also acts as a safety net. Um, but the quote-unquote soft skills are the last mile, and that's really what unlocks the, the value of data science teams and analytics in, uh, teams. We talked a little bit about how teams uh, over time reorg uh, because uh, companies and organizations are really struggling to unlock the value of data science teams at times. And, and that's really the answer is really, how do we get people with, that can communicate insights that can deliver meaningful recommendations to the, to the, to the finish line? Um, that's what we look for in, in, uh, in leadership. And I think it's really important. You said the, the, uh, the, the language of soft skills is, can be off-putting. Uh, and you hit the nail on the head that to, to go to school for X amount of years and learn all these really you know, difficult technical skills, right? And become really competent in them uh, to have someone say, okay, uh, what we need from you is to go and improve your communications. It's, it's a, it's, it's a bit of a, uh, it's a bit of an ego hit, right? And, and rightly so, you know, you, 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 your ex years old, you know, probably, you know, 25, 30, 35 years old, and you're being told you need communication lessons, but it's such a different ball game uh, to be able to communicate with the business because you're not just communicating with an individual or a personality, you're, you're engaging with an institution. So one question follow-up I had from that was, uh, do you think it's important to have a humility about it when it comes to looking to, to put people in that kind of role? Absolutely. And, and it's interesting that you, uh, to, to hear in, in, in that sense. And I totally agree because we see the reactions, right? Especially early stage career when we hire people that have amazing skills. You think about computer vision and these are folks that are going to very high-end universities. And, and, and when the manager is trying to develop their communication or presentation or synthesis skills, Sometimes they feel a little demoralized, and and, and there's a tendency to to reject that, um, and it and it happens frequently, and it's it's really something that I think it's a huge opportunity for an industry. I would I would also present it in a in a in a value uh, sense. How how do we how do we create trust in our stakeholder relationships? And when you think about how you build trust in your relationships at the personal level, ninety nine percent of it, it comes from two 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 qualities. Uh, objectivity and, and consistency. If you if somebody can trust you because you're telling the truth all the time, uh, that goes a long way. But communication also goes a long way, right? Uh, when when you're talking to your friends or your significant others, that's really what about, uh, drives a relationship. And when we're in the business of influencing decision making, uh, a lot of times objectivity and trust and also communication will go uh, a long way. Um, but yeah, this is this is the unexplored last mile, and and it's it's funny to to hear a lot of your podcasts that talk about similar things, right? Is how do we get people who are very passionate about the technical aspects of their work to communicate and synthesize their findings so that they can influence decision making? I think we're seeing a ton of progress in this space uh, to contrast our world from ten or fifteen years ago to the world today. Um, it's, it's, it's not a day uh, in terms of being able to communicate effectively. Um, but I think there's still a, a big opportunity. And if I were to um, teach a college class today, I would say focus on being able to synthesize, communicate the key points, and that will go a long way. That, that's so key. And I think that what we're seeing, uh, you know, we've been working in this space for like five years and we're seeing kind of some camps forming. One I would call the old guard, which is where the way they conduct business is very political. It's very clandestine. There's a lot of game playing going on uh, with the influx of data in big businesses. What you find, what we're finding is it's not only advantageous you know, morally to tell the truth to, to actually, you know, for everyone, it's, it's, it's better for you morally. It's better to, to get more out of the business, but actually it's harder to get away with playing those games uh, because what we're also seeing is, you know, as a data scientist, you can make anything from 100, 150, 200K upwards, right? A year. But if you if you're a data scientist who's who understands the challenges of the business and can be and, and are able to to really read that and, and read the, the the fabric of the business and what they need what you know in a particular whether it's product analytics business analytics whatever that might be, then you're poised to make a really significant amount of money in your career 
so there's, there's there's so many good reasons to do that. Actually, really talking about trust there, I, I really like that. I mean, what is your approach and process to reaching out to key stakeholders and, and establishing that fruitful relationship? For example, like uh, what are the kind of questions you like to ask in order to build that trust? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, it's it's interesting because we we approach this in in a in a number of different ways. Um, historically, we've had very good relationships with uh, product teams and, and business teams where there has already been a somewhat existing relationship with uh, with the with the analytics folks. Um, and, and generally speaking, uh, setting up a, a regular cadence of interaction is really important, especially in the video game industry where relationships go a long way in, in enabling decision making. So FaceTime goes goes a long way now in this world of hybrid workplace, having more 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 frequent uh, check-ins, even if it's like five minutes, ten minutes with different folks, uh, interactions go go a long way. Um, we've actually also approached it approached this in a disruptive way at times, and this is not always recommended because it can ruffle some feathers. But one of the things I we have done is we start analyzing uh, 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 an area uh, of opportunity uh, where we think there's a little bit of an opening um, and, um, and we'll present those insights uh, in, in a very neutral way uh, to just understand whether we're capable of, of understanding that business unit or vertical just by looking at the data. Um, so that's another way to, to start creating an opening uh, around mm. injecting uh, data science and analytics uh, in a different space. And, but in a general sense, I would say there's always, um, there, when, when teams are new uh, and when a company is just getting their feet wet around building uh, data science and analytics capabilities, uh, there needs to be a starting point. And I think it's very important for the leader and leaders of that data science and analytics organization to really understand what they're good at uh, and starting to consistently deliver high quality uh, and meaningful outputs from what they're good at um, or, or uh, at understanding, whether it's uh, understanding the business context or the product context. Um, that goes a long way in building credibility and, and establishing the function. Um, and over time, that builds demand. So what we see is, whereas um, historically to create demand, we, 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 we drive um, insights from an inside out standpoint. So we go to the stakeholder. Uh, over time, what you end up seeing is that stakeholders end up turning to our teams for support and uh, and insights. It's a little bit of a shift in mentality too. What you see is that stakeholders uh, have been making decisions, especially those with long trajectories, have been making decisions for a long, long time with uh, different types of information, whether they gather their information through media or social media or gut feel, mm. whatever it is, they, they have been making decisions. So to all of a sudden change their practices to use data, to use insights, or to even use the recommendations from a data scientist, that's a lot to ask for. Uh, so we better have a value add. And a lot of times the value add is a lot of uh, time savings. We save people a ton of time by automating or, or getting to a point where they their decisions are, uh, are can be yes or no, uh, because the, the insight is just as clear. Mm. And, and I, I like what you said earlier about the, you know, you need to be disruptive. You, you might say disruptive, I would call it being courageous and assertive because we talked earlier about humility as well. So, you, you know, you tell people to improve your communication score, to be a better data leader for the business, you need to be humble, but you also need to be courageous. So uh, how does that, does that need to be at odds with humility, do you think? Yeah, that is a, that's a very good dilemma. I totally agree because um, I think the, the you can be humble. You can you can also be objective at, around your own knowledge. And I think that's very important. Um, I think it's really interesting that sometimes we get a lot of um, sales pitches, right, for AI machine learning products. And, and if you were to, to really listen to the to the sales pitches they're going to solve every problem in the world right with with ai or whatever product sometimes the folks are putting in front of us and that's not being very objective and i think that also sounds like sometimes people are not very humble um and i i get the pressure to drive demand to 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 really you know get the food in their door and so on and so forth but being objective uh, and, and being humble around our own uh limitations goes a long way in, in, in building uh, uh, confidence and trust in a, in a relationship. So this piece that you mentioned, being courageous and starting analyzing a business 
can also come with a ton of caveats as we get in front of people. Let's say we're starting to analyze a new vertical around subscriptions. Um, well, we have a, a data scientist that had a ton of experience in subscriptions and we create a churn metric and we start building churn models. Um, but we'll also be able to put an asterisk on all of our insights and all of our knowledge to say, this is the world as we understand it today. This is going to evolve and we're going to get better. And I think that's really important to understand our own limitations and be very transparent around those limitations. That goes a long way in building trust because um, it's, it's super risky. I've seen teams exaggerate their own capabilities and that's just never going to pay up in the pay off in the long run. I think there may be some short-term advantages uh, but it's difficult to 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 keep up with uh, with exaggeration. Mm. And it's so so important as well because you you can't, especially when you're starting out building that analytics team, you're never going to get a quick big win. You're only going to get a quick small win, which is going to you know give your team more resources, more trust. Then you can scale it that way. There's there's no way you can come in, change something on day one. Everyone's bored. It's this is not how it works, right? And and it's really funny you mentioned about the the AI technology solutions, uh, like sales pitches that you get because I think you can actually apply that mindset in a in, in an analytics context. You know, um, you know, there's there's no individual or no team that's going to solve all of the problems of the business or all of the problems of the products or all of the problems of the engagement or the safety. Uh, but you know, there are going to be many solutions, i.e. individuals or teams out there that can solve very specific business problems that are actually going to have an even bigger impact. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. kind of, you know, it's really, really key because a lot of times when we speak to people, we, they are they they think we provide, the data storytellers is providing a data visualization service. But actually what we're really about is this, this communications in the data analytics function. So it's really about key, about being selective about the kind of projects or, or approach to taking it back to the analytics piece that, that you're actually getting into, right? So one thing I really want to get into, and this is more about you personally. So we've talked a lot about the different skills and the different mindsets. What role did these skills play in your success as a, uh, as a professional during your career? You know, whether it was with, with Minecraft, with EA or, or elsewhere as well, you know, what, can you give us some examples about a time that you maybe helped secure executive sponsorship, you got buy-in, you hired great talent, that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to take you back uh, to around 2015. This is the piece where uh, I'm asking you to put your ultimate team hat on if you remember it. And for those of you in the podcast that don't aren't super familiar with uh, with this product, um, as Paul mentioned, this is this is a video game uh, uh, mode that uh, is very similar to 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 trading cards or or players uh, on on real world or real life, but this happens on on the digital side on video games, and you can actually use the the items that are found in in packs in the in virtual packs to make your team better and compete with others uh, around the globe. And uh, we faced a really interesting scenario. It's not a secret um, that uh, there was a ton of pressure uh, around 2014, 2015, uh, around gray markets uh, with, uh, with, with, uh, with the internet being super active in finding some of these virtual items and maybe potentially being some pressure around the, uh, these items being sold outside of the game. And, um, and that, that had a ton of uh, implications around the, the security, but for the most part, it also created a ton of heartache and headaches for my team who was analyzing the data at the time because we, it was creating a ton of uh, quote unquote fake data or data that wasn't super uh, reliable. Um, and what was really interesting at that point in time is that I think there was a little bit of reluctance by the business uh, to really admit that, hey, this is something that we really need to, uh, to, to address or, or start thinking about um, because um, it may be creating a long-term risk if we just all of a sudden um, allow the, the markets to go wild uh, on, a, on a, a digital space and, uh, and we, don't, we don't rein this in. And, and um, there was a little bit of a push and pull between different functions. Um, uh, obviously, um, it's, it's, it's hard to, to make decisions to change things when um, you've seen success for a long time. And, and, and as a person, you believe that uh, success is just going to continue because we tend to do that. Um, but I think building objectivity uh, through, through a number of years, uh, as, as I mentioned, and building trust really allowed the analytics team that I was leading at that point in time to take the message across that, hey, we can prove that these are uh, uh, issues that need to be addressed uh, in the game in order to continue to build uh, trust with our own players. Um, and I think the, 
the skill that I really uh, rely on is, is this concept of neutrality and, and being as subjective as possible. We all have biases, even our data uh, is going to be biased because we have data engineers, we have um, uh, people that are interacting with the data sets before actually end, uh, reach the end of the line. But, um, but doing our best to, to be objective uh, and also um, be consistently objective. So that's, that's number one. I think that really has um, allowed me to influence decisions over time. Um, and I think that, that decision makers feel safe around making decisions that are being influenced by the data science teams that I lead because more often than not, those decisions are going to be correct. And even if you have a 60% rate of accuracy, if you're making hundreds or thousands of decisions every year, that's, that's ROI positive, right? Mm. Um, but the other thing I would say is failing fast. Um, one of the things that I really strive for is uh, understanding the areas of weaknesses for myself and also for my team and iterating frequently and trying things very, very quickly, prototypes. Um, and even in communication, I'll be very transparent. Um, I, I've, I've never been very good at communicating. And, uh, and, and that's something that I've realized that I was a, a value add in organizations. And what I've strived to do is set up my teams in a way where the rhythm of business moves really, really fast. So we have 52 weeks in a year and we have a weekly meeting with uh, key stakeholders in the organization. We have about 50 decision makers that come into that meeting every single week. And we have our data scientists share out insights and drive recommendations for the studio. This was very controversial, and this has been controversial in the different teams that I've been part of because there's been reluctance by the data scientists. The business loves that, right? The business loves information, so they're more uh, than willing to come into that meeting every single week, but there's reluctance on the data science side. But that allows us to really build those skill sets, the communication, the trust elements that we just talked about. And, uh, and iteration is really the only good way to practice doing this very often, and uh, that's how you get good at it. That, that, that's so interesting because it's very rare that you hear that a data scientist gets to talk to a senior decision maker, right? Because there's there's just like the military, right? There's a hierarchy and you can't you you have to 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 go through the chain of command, they say. So you have to go to your local lead and then things get lost, the message gets mistranslated because of this communication gap in, in big organizations when it comes to data analytics. So actually to have the guys on the ground speaking to the guys making the business, the big business decisions. I could see that being super valuable. And actually you, you mentioned objectivity a lot. And I, I really like that because you are right that as humans, we're inherently biased. We have in, in, inherent prejudices. Um, and I think that it's really important to, to actually keep saying the word objectivity, be objective, be objective, be objective. I mean, how do you, how do you engage your team members with that kind of mindset? How do you approach educating the organization to try and get a mindset of objectivity? Yeah, this is a this is a really interesting challenge because, as you said, there's all sorts of experiences, right, in big companies, and um, and and I think it's no secret, right? The corporations in the past um, have been political in nature, and and there's been a little bit of a push and pull around decision making and uh, driving agendas, so on and so forth. And it's really really hard to stay neutral, but I think data really allows us to do that because it's really difficult to argue against uh, a number or, 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 a, or a finding that's really coming from, from, uh, from robust insights that, um, that is consistent over time. Um, so maybe you can question a KPI uh, in many different ways in a short-term basis. When, when the KPI doesn't really change for, for some time, then, then chances are that, that the KPI is, is telling you the, the truth and, and, and giving you the direction in which the business is going or the product is going, so on and so forth. And this is really important. Time series in data science are like so important, right? And, and I, we use it uh, in so many ways to, to showcase trends. Um, a good one, for example, is understanding uh, the sentiment of player communities over time. On a short-term basis, when we release a product and we and the product goes out in the wild, you'll hear a lot of opinions, right? Positive and negative, and it becomes a little bit of a whirlwind. Who do I listen to? Are people enjoying, are players enjoying the game? Yes or no? And you're going to hear both. And as humans, we have this confirmation bias that we look for things that are going to confirm our assumptions. I put so much effort into building this game and product that I'm just going to look for, for confirmation on that, right? And we'll kind of cherry pick. 
but when you look at, uh, at those numbers objectively through a model, for example, we have a lot of machine learning models that will give us sentiment at scale uh, or on a time series basis, and you start seeing trends, um, that gives you uh, a little bit of more of an ability to detach from the problem and understand if time is uh, driving driving the uh, a change in in any topic, right? In this specific uh, scenario, it's, it's sentiment, which goes a long way in, in video game retention. Um, so, so I think that's a really good strategy is really defaulting back to what we do, which is data, delivering data-driven insights um, and, uh, and making sure that our own uh, analytics and all our own data sets are as unbiased as possible. It's obviously impossible to uh, remove 100% of bias, but at the same time, we have good ways of uh, using statistical techniques uh, to understand the probability of our data sets being right or wrong, right? Um, testing things uh, when we have a certain assumption about the way that the world works. Um, sometimes we can test a lot of that and we, we use A-B tests uh, very frequently. We're probably running six or seven uh, A-B tests at any given point in time in the game. It's more difficult to do in, in, in console video games like Minecraft. Uh, it's easier to do in mobile games and websites, for example, where you're just testing many experiences. But I think that goes a long way too. Um, so not, long story short, is really around understanding what we're good at. And sometimes it's really simple. The answer is data. So let's use data to build that objectivity and trust. Yeah, the, the answer is simple, but the execution, uh, not so much. Uh, just for example, with, with you mentioned, uh, you know, avoiding that confirmation bias as much as possible. And just in general, how intentional and rigorous are you with things like setting clear priorities, building strategic plans and following tactical roadmaps? Because you mentioned, and rightly so, that data science is, is very time sensitive. Uh, you know, do you have a system in place that helps you and the team you know, get the results or fail fast and then move on, um, you know, to, to, to take those next steps? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. So um, I I think you've been exposed to a lot of data science teams that sometimes operate as software development teams, and um, and, and it really is it, every organization is going to have uh, different setups, but we we intentionally moved away from a very rigid agile type of uh, prioritization, which was basically based on on uh, uh, outside in type of prioritization where the studio at large would submit requests into the data science team and the data science team would basically prioritize each of those requests one by one. Um, and um, whoever asked for something first gets it first, right? Um, what that ended up resulting in is just a ton of dashboard development. Um, so what we are, uh, we moved to a Kanban approach, um, which basically, um, allows us to prioritize things more flexibly uh, and almost on a weekly basis. We obviously have yearly planning uh, processes. So every year the, the studio will engage in conversation around new products, new initiatives, so on and so forth. We're part of that conversation. So we know big picture what's going to happen, where our priorities are going to be, uh, what features are going to come online, and we plan a calendar. But our day-to-day -day is actually fairly flexible in the sense that we look at the results that are coming out of different initiatives. We also look at the results on the business side every single week. As I mentioned, we have this huddle with about 50 people, and that would actually dictate whether we modify uh, our priorities. So I think it's really important, especially for teams that are struggling to unlock the value of data science and analytics, to understand flexibility and see flexibility as a comparative advantage uh, to be able to align to the business, right? Because if you think about how decision makers operate, think about the CEO of a company, they don't operate on Scrum, they don't operate on Agile, right? Um, and I think that us being part of a software development company, we have a ton of pressure to align to software development best practices. That's not always the answer. Uh, so flexibility goes a long way, especially when the world is changing consistently and constantly because um, players are changing. Uh, and they're playing one game today and they may be playing one game tomorrow because their friends all of a sudden decided to play something else. So keeping up with our players is also really important. Yeah, and you use the term best practice there in, in a really interesting context because when you think of best practices, the, the automatic assumption is this is what you need to do 100% of the time. 
but that's not what best practice actually means. Best practice means most of the time, this is the way you should do it. There's always going to be exceptions. There's always going to be reasons, not good reasons not to do that. Uh, so that's key. And actually, we, we've spoken a lot today about, you know, your role, your team. I kind of want to get your views on the on the outside world now, uh, just for the last few questions. So how are you? how do you see data analytics outside of the video game industry today? You know, let's say data driven business transformation in the corporate world. Yeah, great question. I think this is a very exciting time for data science. I think we're living in an era where our lives are totally interconnected and, and devices, everything that we're doing today is producing data uh, and information. This information can be used to make our lives easier, more productive. Uh, in our case, in the video game space, it can make our lives more entertaining, right? Because we're making better uh, video game products. I think also in the industry in general, there are a lot of really nice skill sets coming out of university and in the tech world, you're also seeing this, you describe the tech world or the, the corporation world uh, as two camps uh, or the, the old guard being a little bit more political and such. I'm gonna use that analogy. I think there's also two worlds in the, in the data science world today where the technical know-how for working in big data that um, is coming out of uh, startups and in tech um, is very valuable. Universities are also starting to bring up skill sets that can deal with big data. I think that's really the continuation of a bit of a trend uh, moving into cloud and being able to, to, to use uh, and manage uh, unstructured data sets. I still see some inertia uh, happening in, in the data science world where historically there have been two camps, the data engineering world and the data science world. I think those two worlds are coalescing and we're asking data scientists to do more data engineering work and data engineers to really understand the data science applications a little bit better. I think the data science, the future in data science will be for those who are comfortable in both camps, on the technical side, on the statistical side, and taking it a little bit further uh, in, on the pieces around communication and, uh, and influence that we've been describing. I think that also um, I see this trend, this continuation of con continue to rethink and reevaluate organizational structures. Every company that I've been exposed to, and we, we've heard about this in the news, you think about Facebook and Netflix and others, they, they really think and rethink their organizational structure uh, to be able to harness the, the power of data science. And I think the answer really lies on the superpowers of people. Um, I think that organizations are that are getting the, their organizational structure right are really good at understanding their leaders in data science and they can build an organization around those leaders. They, as to your point, not necessarily have to, to read a book on best practices on how to set up a data science team, but actually working with those leaders to build the organizational structure that makes the most sense. Um, and I think in general, there's, um, there's going to be more opportunities in data science to personalize experiences in the digital world, uh, not just in video games, but in everything we do. I, we're living in, in, in smart homes, right? And, and our, our own homes are starting to, to know us a little bit better, even our vacuum cleaner, because uh, there's an algorithm uh, that understands what I do and what my routine is. And that's the same for video games. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really cool. Um, so I think this is a space that's going to continue to grow. And last but not least, I'll, I think we should put a pin on this one and revisit this five years from now. I think that there will be a ton of data science skills represented in decision-making roles. Um, I think that um, what we're seeing today in academia, for example, at universities, is that there are data science programs in, in, uh, inside the discipline program. So for example, engineering can have a specialization in data science. Business can have a specialization in data science. So you don't necessarily need to be a pure play data scientist. There's going to be people that can deal with big data, can run very deep statistical analysis and be able to make decisions for a product or for a business. So I think mm. there's a few things happening, but I think the world in general for data science is extremely exciting coming up. So, so what made you fall in love with data analytics? Because clearly you're passionate about it. Uh, you know, what do you like most about your job? Um, the intersection of, of, of insights and technology, I think that's really what, uh, what I get the most excited about, uh, working with really smart people all of the time. And I think it's funny, we joke sometimes that 
we actually get paid to think. And, and I think that's very rare uh, for, for a lot of jobs out there. Um, I don't see my job as, as, a, as, a, as something that is grindy or that is just cumbersome. Uh, I see it as exciting uh, and I see it as, the, as a hobby almost, right? I'm passionate about video games and I'm passionate about the intersection of technology and insights. I write my own models uh, over the weekends and nights. I write code. Uh, and so I like to start, stay relevant, uh, prototyping new things. Um, and, and as I mentioned, leading very smart people will challenge you and to, will put your assumptions to the test. And I think that's extremely exciting. And, you know, what are you currently most uh, excited about that you're working on, on at the moment? Um, so building, we're ramping up a few new functions. And as I mentioned, the, the world in data science is becoming diverse, whereas sometimes companies can think about data science as a narrow application. We're starting to think very broad. Um, we're wrapping up new functions in the player support space around anomaly detection, uh, understanding the context, this concept of empathetic social listening, um, and also uh, building new functions around uh, personalization in, in video games. Um, so for, for all of this, it's, it's a brand new world for my team, for example. There are functions, there are teams out there that have done this at scale and very well. Uh, but I think starting to bring up a few new functions online is going to be extremely exciting. And what I will say, what really personally excites me about data science in the, in the near term is really our ability to make our experiences more fun for players because we're listening better. We're using algorithms to really understand their experience better. We also understand what they're going through in the video game. My bet is that over the next couple of cycles, they're going to see uh, really good outcomes coming out of the video games. Hmm. And, and I think that this is more of an aside at the moment, but I think that with a game like Minecraft that is, is probably the, not only the best selling, but also the most open-ended open world game you can ever get. Do you think that that's concurrent with the trend of data analytics, in, uh, you know, since it came out? Yeah, and it's interesting that you point out this intersection of uh, big data with big experiences and the next, the next milestone, and I was joking about this a couple of weeks ago, is the metaverse, right? Um, I did this really interesting exercise, uh, very low tech. I went on Bing and I went to Google and I Googled the search, uh, the, the word metaverse and the results that came out of images really res resembled Minecraft, right? Mm. Uh, with the exception that there's a purple theme for some reason. So we <laughs> joke that the future is purple. Uh, and, uh, and I think what, what's really interesting is to think about what's coming in, in video games and this trend towards the metaverse where it's possibly never ending. And you think about the amount of data that is going to be produced from some of those never ending experiences. Um, how do you manage that scale? Uh, that creates a little interesting uh, concept. But I think also there are other things to think about like privacy and the safety. Like what happens when you know kids go out into the metaverse? How do you keep them safe? And, and, uh, and, and there's a lot of stuff happening on the internet that we're, our, as parents, we we're not always aware of um, could be happening, right? So how do we as companies that produce these video games keep our populations and our players as safe as possible. Um, so there's a lot of interesting questions around the future of data in, mm. in, in this expansion of never-ending experiences. It's almost like a, a data ethics problem that's specific to the industry, right? Absolutely, and I think that because this piece that we talked about, whereas TV and music are forms of digital entertainment that are linear, we have this back and forth where there's real-time interaction. So there's, uh, this mm. is definitely a, 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 a problem that is somewhat unique uh, to the video game space. But I will also point out that the video game space is not new to some of these challenges. The PC world has been driving massively, uh, massive multiplayer uh, games for, for a long, long time. And there are some good practices uh, but what is interesting to think about is what social media has experienced recently, where they may be really good at uh, protecting their customer base in certain languages and not in others, right? In some mm. uh, topics, uh, we're very good at understanding with algorithms, not others, because of the corpus and the dictionaries that data scientists have access to. That will evolve. I think that you're going to see AI and ML applied in a way that is really going to uh, accelerate capabilities in this space, but it's always going to be there. There's always going to be a need for data science in this space. Yeah, the uh, the purple world of our end. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm looking forward to that one. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. 
So one last question for you. Uh, what advice would you give for aspiring data leaders who want to work in the, the video game industry? Um, what I would say is uh, don't be afraid to be bold. Uh, as we talked about, it's really important for uh, people to understand your insights. And, and sometimes there's a little bit of a vacuum of information, especially at the executive layer, at the decision-making layer. So what I would suggest is for those that are starting in a career in data science, if you're passionate about a topic, if you want to drive a recommendation, don't be afraid to speak up. Um, you probably have more information than most people if you actually have access to the data and meaningful data sets. The other piece that, uh, that we've been talking about is don't undervalue soft skills. This communication, presentation, synthesis skills are extremely valuable. And the art of influencing, the influencing via trust and objectivity are going to be incredibly important. Um, and and you, you haven't heard me say, um, double down on your technical skill sets. And, and I honestly think that that's happening. That is happening. Universities and your experience are building your technical skill sets and you're getting exposed to, to, uh, to strong uh, technology really value this piece the last mile around getting your insights to action mm. well francisco it's been a, a really genuine pleasure speaking with you uh keep doing what you're doing it sounds like you're doing a great job and we'll catch up soon thank you so much for the time i really appreciate it we'll, we'll talk to you soon